He opened the seventh seal, and there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. So a little bit of a recap here. Back in Revelation chapter 5, that was the first time we were introduced to this scroll that had seven seals upon it. Back in Revelation chapter 5, we saw a great difficulty in heaven, if you would, because no one was worthy to open the scroll. And there there's an angel, he's able to search in all of heaven, and there's no man worthy to open the scroll. He's able to search all of earth, and there's no one worthy to open the scroll. He's even able to search under the earth, hell itself, and there's not one man worthy enough to open the scroll. None of the angels, none of the cherubim, none of the seraphim, no other heavenly creature was able or worthy enough to open the scroll. But again, thank be to the Lord. Revelation 5 verse 9 and 10, it tells us they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Again, Jesus, the lamb who was slain, is the only one who is worthy to open the scroll. And once Jesus takes the scroll, then in Revelation chapter 6, he begins to peel these seals off one by one. The first four seals, as we saw in Revelation 6, we know as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And we saw these four different horsemen, different colored horses, and the destruction and chaos they bring upon the earth. The fifth seal brought to us the cry of the martyrs. Brothers and sisters all throughout the world, all throughout time, that have given their lives out of faithfulness to Jesus Christ, unwilling to relent and let go of their relationship with God, even if it would cost them their lives. Finally, the sixth seal had all of these cosmic disturbances. Strange things happen to the sun, strange things happening to the moon, meteors falling upon the face of the earth, mountains and islands being moved in a great and crazy way. This struck fear in the hearts of all mankind in Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 through 17. It tells us the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? In Revelation chapter 7, we were given a quick break in all the destruction and chaos, and we're introduced to these 144,000 witnesses. These Jewish converts to the faith that would come to faith during the tribulation and these 144,000 Jewish men would go out like Paul's preaching the gospel to all the world, which would lead to this great multitude of people in heaven who got saved during the great tribulation. Revelation 7 verse 14 tells us these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And this finally brings us to chapter 8 and this final seal being opened. There's sort of a progression that takes place throughout the book of Revelation when it comes to God's judgment. First, we're given the seven seals of God's judgment. Those seven seals lead to the seven trumpets. 
of God's judgment. And those seven trumpets lead to the seven bowls or the seven vials of God's judgment. With the seven seals, we saw the lead to the rise of the Antichrist. He's the first seal that comes out. Then we see incredible violence happening all across the face of the earth that God has allowed peace itself to be taken away from the planet. Then we saw famine and the great famine that would strike the whole planet. You'd have to work an entire day and that would get you one loaf of bread for a whole day's work. The food price increase, right? We're going through difficulty now with prices going up. But in this time during the tribulation, the, food, the price of food will increase by 12 times. So it's a 1,200% price food hike increase, right? And then finally, a quarter of the earth's population will die in the midst of this war and famine and madness. That's almost 2 billion people dying over the course of this first seven judgments. Much of what goes on during the seven seals of judgment can be thought to just be natural disasters or mankind continuing to spiral out of control and make dumb mistakes like we usually do. However, the seven trumpets are the judgment and phenomenons from heaven itself. We're going to see an angel take some ingredients from heaven and throw them at the earth. The judgment from God is going to intensify, but yet, as always, in wrath, God remembers mercy. We looked at that in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2 last week. That God, instead of just wiping out the earth's entire population in an instant, God wipes away little by little by little. And again, just the grace and mercy of God. One of the first things we're going to witness here in Revelation 8 is a great silence in heaven. 30 minutes of silence. And this verse, uh, listening to Rich Chafin, is just such a great verse as a diving board. It's Isaiah 28, verse 21. You can just write it down. In the King James Version, it says, For the Lord shall rise up as in Mount Perizim. He shall be wroth as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his strange work, and bring to pass his act, his strange act. This scripture is given before God pours out his wrath on the nation of Israel. But Isaiah says that this is a strange work. This is a strange act. This is unusual for God. Because what are God's normal operating procedures? Is God's normal operating procedure wrath? Do we taste of wrath day in and day out? Every morning, every night, are we tasting of the wrath of God? Right? The Bible tells us that God is love. It's not God is wrath. God is love. That's his normal operating procedures. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 tells us, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In Scripture, it tells us that there's this new taste of God every morning. And what is that? What is new every morning? His mercies are new every morning. It's not his wrath is new every morning. His condemnation is new every morning. His belittling is new every morning. No, it's his mercies that are new each and every morning. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. Jeremiah would say, Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions, they fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Again, we may taste the condemnation of the devil every morning. 
Maybe this morning the devil is condemning you, telling you not to come to church. But God's mercies are new every morning. This is God's normal way of operating. In Psalm chapter 30, verse 5, David pens this. David that had tasted of God's judgment in his life at least two times, probably three times or more. But David tasted of God's judgment. And he would say in Psalm 30, verse 5, for his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And again, this is the character. All these scriptures we've looked at, right? Besides for 1 John, these are all Old Testament scriptures. This is the character of God the Father. This is the character of our God. This is the character of the Old Testament God. Again, believer, be careful that the lies of this world haven't crept into your mind thinking that our God is a God of wrath or that the Old Testament God is such a big bad boogeyman, right? And he's out there and he's so cruel. No, our God is a God that normally operates with way too much, if we're honest, grace, love, and mercy. And we need to be reminded that in the book of Revelation, who's being revealed? It's Jesus Christ. The heart of our Savior and King is being revealed to us more and more each page and each chapter. Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 11 says that the Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the evil would turn from his way and live. To turn, turn from your evil ways. That's the heart of the Lord. It's not to see unbelievers die and perish and burn in hell for all of eternity. No, the heart of God is that they would turn, that they would turn from their evil ways. Again, we go through difficulty in this life and we get frustrated. We want judgment as long as it's not for us, right? We love judgment just as long as it's not on us. When someone cuts us off in traffic and they're going 90 miles an hour through a school zone, right? And then there's a speed trap at the end of the block and they get caught. We go, yes, right? We get all excited. We get happy. You got yours, right? We get super happy. But what happens when we're late for work, right? What happens when we're late for church and we're speeding? God, please give me grace. Give me mercy, God. Please give me grace and mercy. Uh, again, we're so hypocritical here. We get frustrated, right? Many of us, we've been frustrated over these past two, three years. We ask God to rain down fire from heaven. We get frustrated. We say, sick him, Jesus, right? We get mad. We get frustrated. But we need to be reminded, this is not the mindset of heaven. This is not the mindset of our king. Let's turn to Luke chapter 15. And in Luke 15, a chapter on the true heart of God. Luke chapter 15. We'll skim through some of these verses here. Luke 15 verse 4. This is Jesus speaking. He says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Verse 7 says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, he says, likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
In verse 20, we see the heart of the father who's waiting for his prodigal son who has left the house. And there in Luke 15, verse 20, it says that he arose, he came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, he had compassion on him, and then he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Again, the, the father of the prodigal son, he's not bummed seeing his son come home. He's not mad that he made a man cave out of his bedroom and now he has to turn it back into his room, right? Turn it into his gym or his workshop and now he has to change it back. No, he throws a party. He has a celebration. He exclaims that his son was lost, but now he's found. This is the heart of our God. This is the heart of Jesus Christ. Second Peter tells us that our God is long suffering towards mankind. He's willing to suffer long through the injustice of this world, the sin of this world, the pride of this world. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7, it tells us, But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Again, the heart of God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Finally, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4 it says, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Again, this is the desire of God the Father. This is the desire of our King Jesus for all men to come to Him. Which is why, as we go back to Revelation 8, His judgment is poured out in increments. It's poured out in increments. We're going to even see here that he's going to pause halfway through the seven trumpet, the seven trump, the trumpets, right? And he's going to give a pause there and warn the people about the second half of the trumpets coming. Now, if you're going to war with someone, do you warn them before you go to war with them? Only if you're trying to preserve life. Only if you're trying to save the women and the children and the other people that they're using. So again, our God is a God of grace, mercy. And love. And when we have anger or bitterness because he's calling our sins sins, remember that he's a God of grace, mercy, and love. And that doesn't change. Even though you and I are sinners, even though we are committing sins, those things are sins. They're going to kill us, they're going to destroy us. He's not saying that to us because he wants to harm us. He desires to save life. So back to Revelation chapter 8. Verse 1, it tells us, when he opened, this is Jesus, opening the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Every time we've looked at heaven, there's worship, there's singing, there's harps, there's instruments, music is going on. We've said it several times that heaven is going to be a loud place. Angels, the four creatures, the elders, a group that you can't even count of so many Christians, all singing together in unison. And yet now we see complete silence in heaven for about 30 minutes. And if we're honest, we don't really like silence. It used to be said silence is golden, right? 
But now, if we're honest, it kind of freaks us out. Like, if hey, let's take the 10 minutes and just sit here in silence. Zach, please make it stop. Please make it stop, right? This is getting awkward. Please make it stop, right? We, we really don't enjoy that. Henry Newman, he says, in this chatty society, silence has become a fearful thing. For most, silence creates itchiness, nervousness. Many experience silence not as full and rich, but as empty and hollow. For them, silence is like a gaping abyss which can swallow them up. I think that's many of us today. That's most of the world today. We have so much noise around us sort of to drown out the reality of where our lives are at. Right? Many of us, we get home and we turn on the TV. We have music, a podcast. We need some type of music going on, even if we're not paying attention to it. Because if we are left in complete silence, you're left there with your thoughts. You're left there with the reality. You're left there with the big questions. Why am I here? What is my life worth? What is my legacy? What's happening with my kids? What am I going to leave behind? Those big questions start coming into your mind. But we like to just drown it out with noise, with notifications, with wasteful things. So we don't look at the reality of our lives. And if silence is difficult for us now for this carnal reason, imagine the tension and the weight of the silence in heaven. The four living creatures, they're silent. All of the host of angels, they're silent. The multitude of multitude of believers, they are all silent. And why is that, right? We could try to decide, hey, why are they silent? And I truly think it's on this. It's because God is about to pour out his judgment, right? Whenever there's a judge about to give a sentence in a courtroom to the person on trial, usually everybody gets quiet. There's not a drum roll, or it's not like drum roll please, right? And then the sentence is given, the verdict is given. There's not a countdown timer, 10, 9, 8, right? And the, the sentence is about to be given. There's a silence that comes over the crowd. At the viewing of a funeral, there seems to be this quiet, ominous hush that comes over the people. Usually at a funeral, you're not having to shush people, right? It's not difficult to hear someone speaking even across the room during the funeral. If you're at an internment, when the casket is being lowered into the ground, it is so quiet that you can literally hear the wind blowing, the leaves rustling. You can hear sniffles. It's as if you can hear tears falling down the cheeks of people that loved this person that's passing away. Because the final judgment of sin on our mortal bodies is there in front of everyone to see. I've never been to a public execution. I don't plan on going to one. But I got to imagine there's just silence. I don't think there's any music playing. I don't think there's any background music. I don't think there's any hype-up music. I don't think there's elevator music. I don't think they're trying to hype up the crowd or anything like that. I think there's a somber silence. Because everyone is feeling the weight of judgment upon a life. And this is the sense I believe is going on in heaven. After so many years, thousands of years of God operating in His grace and His mercy and His kindness and His love towards mankind. After years and thousands of years of patience and long-suffering, now the seventh seal is finally going to be opened and God will be beginning... The end of his wrath on mankind. And all of heaven, they're struck with silence. 
David Guzik, he says, more likely this silence in heaven demonstrates a sober, awestruck silence at the judgments to come. Now that the seals are off and that the scroll can be opened. And there's two Old Testament prophets that sort of speak on this. In Zechariah chapter 2, verse 13, Zechariah says, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. In Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 7, it says, Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. So there's just a silence, an ominous silence that comes because God's wrath is about to be poured out. Thousands of years of God's grace and mercy, and now there's going to be these seven years of God's complete wrath being poured out on this planet. I believe there's also a silence of anticipation and expectations finally being met because the prayers of the saints for thousands of years will finally be answered. The prayers we've been praying for thousands of years will finally be answered. Soon, Skip Isaac says, the saints will be vindicated, Satan will be destroyed, sin will be done away with, and Jesus Christ will reign forever. There's a good reason to be silent. So again, an ominous silence at the judgment of God's wrath and also a silence of anticipation and expectation. Lord, you're finally going to answer our prayers. There in verse 2, amidst the silence... We see the, right, this is an imperative statement here, these seven angels who stand before God and to them were given seven trumpets. Jewish tradition speaks of seven angels who stand in the presence of God ready for any call that he would give them. In Luke chapter 1 verse 19, the old man Zacharias, as he's there serving in the temple at the altar of incense, there's an angel that visits him and tells him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you to bring you these glad tidings. So we have these, these, the, right, seven angels, and they're given seven trumpets. They're not to start a band. That's not why God has given them the seven trumpets. They're not starting a jazz band or a marching band or anything like that. Trumpets, they're the most frequent musical instrument throughout the whole Bible. More than any other musical instrument, twice as many times as harps. But trumpets normally are not for music in Scripture, but they are to give orders. In Numbers chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, God tells Moses to make two silver trumpets... And he's going to use them to call the congregation and to direct the movement of the camp. Even today on military barracks, there's different trumpet sounds for different meanings. Same thing in ancient times. They couldn't all receive a text, right? They weren't all on the wilderness group thread and told where to go, right? Hey, the cloud is moving. Let's get up. No, it didn't work that way. They wouldn't get an amber alert or an angel alert. Hey, we're so-and-so's kid. Let's go find them, right? Two million people in the wilderness. It was all through trumpets. Again, military barracks today, it's electronic trumpets. But even till today, there's a wake-up call, a certain trumpet. There's roll call, a different type of sound. There's the mess call, probably the favorite, right? That's for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That's a different call. A call for assembly, different calls, a call to charge, a call to retreat. And this was all given and still given today through trumpets. David Guzik, he says, these seven trumpets will sound as God's battle alarm during the great tribulation. 
A.R. Faust said, he says, by these seven trumpets, the world's kingdoms are going to be overturned and make way for Christ's universal kingdom. In verse 3, John continues to look. These seven angels, they're given seven trumpets. And again, it's just silence. Just dead silence as all of this is going on. Then another angel who has a golden censer, he came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hands. So again, this is all in silence. It's interesting to be reminded that the tabernacle and the temple were fashioned after the throne room of God. That as God is talking with Moses, he says, hey, make sure you fashion it according to what you've seen in heaven. And in heaven, we see here that they're giving these incense and these prayers right before the throne of God. And in the temple and in the tabernacle, right outside the Holy of Holies, there would be a small altar for the altar of incense. And this would be, again, be a picture of prayers being offered up before the presence of God. I think this reveals to us just how important prayer is to God. It's so important to Him. And how important the prayers of the saints are to God. They're not lost. They're not misplaced. Every single prayer is kept by God. Every single prayer has been heard by God. Every single prayer has been answered by God. We just don't like the answer most of the time. That's all, right? But I don't know if you've ever prayed a prayer and like, God, are you even up there? Are you even hearing me? Hello, is this thing on? Right? I don't know if you've ever been there before. But here what God is revealing to us is that all the prayers of the saints are there in the throne room of God. If you're a parent here or maybe you've dated someone or you're married and you go through that season in life where you got to move or clean the, cu- the clutter out, right? And all of a sudden you find these notes, right, that your wife gave you or your girlfriend gave you when you first started dating. Do you throw them away or not? I guess it just depends how sentimental you are, right? Or if they're still your girlfriend. If they're not your girlfriend, you should probably throw them away and, and move on, right? But if you love them, sentimental value, right, you keep them. Oh, this was from this and this time, right? Or if you have little kids that are now grown up and they're not so cute to you anymore, right? You, you keep those Father's Day cards. You keep those Mother's Day cards, right? Number one dad. Hey, you remember when you used to think I was number one dad, right? Or whatever the case may be, you, you keep those things because there's sentimental value attached to it. And what we see here is that in the throne room of God, all of your prayers and all of my prayers are there besides God the Father. How he cares for them. Again, I don't think any true disciple of Jesus would say prayer is not important. I think we would all say that. Hey, do you think prayer is important? Yeah, prayer is important. But does the overflow of our life reveal that we actually think prayer is important? I think if you ask most people today, hey, do you think diet and exercise is important? Yeah, I think diet and exercise is important. But does the overflow of our life, right, show that we really believe exercise and diet, it's important? That's a great question for us. Is prayer actually important in our lives? Or do we, yeah, I pray three times a day. Lord, thank you for this food. Lord, thank you for this food. Lord, thank you for this food, right? Of course I pray. Lord, help me in traffic, help me in this test, help me to not lose my temper. Of course I pray, right? 
Luke chapter 18, verse 1, Jesus speaks a parable and he says that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Jesus says we ought to always pray and not lose heart. Most of the parables that Jesus gives on prayer, he says that we should literally be like a nagging neighbor, a neighbor that's constantly banging on the door of heaven, asking for the same things over and over and over again. That's what Jesus, that's how he tells us we should be praying. He also tells us we shouldn't be praying. Sometimes people, it's like they have a new language when they start praying, right? Our Father, how art thou? And they, they just start talking in a whole different way. No, we're supposed to cry out to him like our dad. Abba, Father, just like our, the way you talk to your dad. I've seen many of you guys, none of you talk to your dad the way that some people pray, right? That's how we should be speaking with our Father, going to him constantly. Thomas F. Torrance, he says, more potent and more powerful than all the dark and mighty powers let loose in this world. More powerful than anything else is the power of prayer set ablaze by the fire of God and cast upon the earth. That's what we're about to see. The angel's going to take the very fires and embers that were used to offer up the prayers of the saints. And he's going to take those fires and embers and hurl them at the earth beginning the judgment upon planet earth. So what are some of the prayers that possibly set this in motion? Let's turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 74. Look at a couple of Psalms in Scripture. If you're looking for prayers to pray, people always say to pray scriptural prayers. So maybe you'll get some new ones today that you could use. Psalm 74, verse 10 and 11. Psalm 74, verse 10 and 11. It reads, O God, how long will the adversary reproach Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out from your bosom and destroy them. Again, perhaps these are some of the prayers that are being met, being answered. Psalm 82 verse 8. Go into the right in your Bible. Psalm 82 verse 8. A psalm of Asaph. It says, Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Finally, you could go to Psalm 94. Psalm 94, verse 1. It says, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth. Render punishment to the proud. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? Again, I believe these are some of the prayers of the saints that are finally going to be answered in those moments of just utter silence. Even in Revelation chapter 6 verse 10, the prayer of the martyrs, it says that they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord? Holy and true until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Again, for thousands of years, the saints have been praying, Lord, your kingdom come. Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you go outside, does it look like heaven out there, right? Not at all. But one day those prayers will be answered. 
Back to Revelation chapter 8, verse 5. It says, Then the angel took the censer, and now he fills it with fire from the altar, and he threw it to the earth. It's all silence right now, right? Dead quiet. And what breaks the silence? I wonder if anybody gets startled. Some people get startled easier than others, right? All of a sudden, there's noises, thunderings, lightnings, and earthquakes. Again, the angel takes the same censer that offered up incense and the prayers of the saints, and now he fills it with fire from the altar and throws it down to the earth. What breaks the silence of heaven? The thundering and the earthquake of God's judgment upon the earth. That's what breaks the silence. And now in verse 6, the seven angels, they prepare. They get their seven trumpets prepared to sound them. And now we see four out of the seven trumpet blasts. Verse 7, the first angel sounded and hail and fire followed mingled with blood. And they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. Again, if you're reminded, the earth is already going through much difficulty. There's a great famine in the land. The price of food is up 1,200%. And now one-third of all the trees are gone. All of the green grass is burnt to a crisp. Most of Africa, it's a green savanna, right? You look at the center of the United States, all the prairie land, all the feed for the cattle, all of that grass is burnt to a crisp in an instant. You also think of the forests, the rainforest, all the tropical, tropical climate around the globe, one-third of it is gone in an instant, right? During the season, we've realized how important oxygen is for our lungs, but the oxygen levels of the earth are going to drop drastically. Everybody who has asthma, it's going to kick up to a whole nother notch. Climate change is actually going to be a big problem here, right? The second trumpet in verse 8, it says, Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. I think it's important as we read the book of Revelation to take it literally, unless John is telling us it's don't take it literally, right? And here he's saying something like a great mountain burning with fire. So it's not Mount Everest falls on its side and falls into an ocean. No, it's something like a great mountain. So we don't know if this is a huge meteor that's burning with fire and it's thrown into the sea. And now all of a sudden, there's no like here. It says a third of the sea became blood. We know that when Moses was used by God to pour forth judgment on Egypt, the first plague was all the water being turned to blood. And here in this instant, right, again, oxygen levels are already dropped. Now all of a sudden, one-third of all the living creatures in the sea die. And a third of all the ships are destroyed. Again, a lot of our oxygen comes from trees and plants, but even more of it comes from plankton and different things and algae, different things out there in the ocean. And now all of a sudden, one-third of all the sea creatures die. I don't know if there's any uh, fishermen here. I don't know if you ever had the joy of leaving bait in a cooler for a couple days, right? And you forgot it was there. And you open up that cooler and you, right, you almost pass out and wake back up, right? Imagine that. 
on steroids because one-third of every sea creature is dead. You got humpback whales washing up on shore, killer whales washing up on shore, all the bait fish, all the living creatures. One-third of the ocean life is dead. Again, it's a smell no one really enjoys, right? Oh, I love the smell of dead fish in the morning, right? Have you ever been on the West Coast when there's red tide and you're walking out to the beach just... No, there's nothing like that, right? First your nose and your lungs are all itchy from the red tide and then you got the smell of all the dead fish. And now this is what's taking place all over the planet. I got to think the real estate of any beachfront property is dropping drastically, right? You have all this dead fish coming up to shore and we're having difficulty right now at the different ports. Now you have one-third of all ships being destroyed as a result of what's going on here in the oceans. Now, verse 10, the third trumpet, it tells us, Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter." So in verse 11, it says that the name of this star is Wormwood. It's just literally bitter waters is what it's saying here. Just kind of a weird translation to Wormwood. But one-third of all fresh water is being corrupted here. So we don't know if Zephyr Hills, if they're out, right? Or Lake Okeechobee, they're out. Wherever your favorite spring water is from, Fiji water, whatever the case may be, right? One-third of all fresh water is corrupted. And it's to the point that there are some men that drink the water and they die because of the bitterness and the corruption in the fresh water. Finally, verse 12, it says, Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. If you turn to Matthew 24, Jesus, he prophesies to this same point after the tribulation is taking place. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 29. And what we see here, it's not that God has hit the dimmer switch. It's not that there's a, 30%, a 33% dimming on the sun. But it's that day itself is giving us a third less of daylight. A third less of moonlight. In Matthew 24, verse 29, Jesus says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So again, it's just catastrophic what is going on, what's taking place. I don't think any of us, I hope none of us would wish this upon our worst enemy. So what do we do with this? We go to verse 13 and close up the chapter here. Revelation 8 verse 13. He says, And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. And again, if you're at war with someone, you don't warn them of the wrath that's about to come. You're trying to take them by surprise. You're trying to completely destroy them 
unless you're trying to protect life. Unless you're trying to save life. And here there's an angel. It's not up in the heavens, but it's literally in the sky. Right? Sometimes you see the planes with the banners behind them. Will you marry me? Or something else, right? Whatever the case may be. Here there's going to be an angel going through the sky warning. Right? You, we've heard about war and giving pamphlets to warn people to get out of the area. Here there's an angel warning all of mankind of the oncoming judgment of God. And it's very practical because another one-third of the earth's population is going to die during the last three trumpet judgments. That's after already seeing at least a quarter of the earth's population die during the first seven seals. First seven seal judgments. Again, you don't want to be around for this. You don't want any of your loved ones to be around for this. So, so how do we apply this, right? As we go to the Bible, we take it literally. We try to get this true and proper context. And then we should always ask God, how can I apply this to my life, right? Should I start reading this to my kids before bedtime? Is, is that the play here, right? How do we apply it? Depends on your kids if they like Revelation or not. But how do we apply this? I think the first thing is we need to be sharing the gospel more. Got to be sharing the good news more. So often we're worried about the gospel. Oh, they're going to think I'm crazy. They're going to think I hate them. No, if you let someone go through this and don't warn them about it, then I think you hate them, right? But if you're warning people of the oncoming wrath of God and you're warning them of the true nature of God today, again, that, that's our heart. That's our goal. That's what God has commanded us to do, to go forth and share and preach the gospel. For some of us, we need to be, be reminded, maybe you're going through a, seasoning, a season of the chastening of the Lord, right? Seasoning of the chastening. You're getting cooked up by God, right? You're going through a season of chastening from God. Be reminded of what David said in Psalm 30, verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. I know I may get in trouble for this, but with my kids, I love them dearly. And the best form of discipline that I've seen, and I see in Scripture, it is, it's spanking. And one of the things that it brings so much joy at the end of it is right away there's fellowship back with dad and with son. Right away there's fellowship with dad and with daughter right after the punishment. When we go through other forms of punishment, there's still a breaking in the fellowship of mom and dad. And the kids, how do you restore that if you just put them on time out? How do you restore that if you just take something away from them? And that's the way the Lord chastens us. He says, hey, for a moment, you're going to get this anger. For a moment, you're going to have the weeping. But if you come out of it with the right heart, you have God's favor for life. If you come out of it with the right heart, you have joy from here on out. And for some of us here, you're going through that season of that spanking. You're going through that season of discipline. Or you're going through that season where God is allowing you to reap what you've sown in your life in this past season. And it all depends. It all hinges on how do you react to the chastening of the Lord. Some people, they react to the chastening of the Lord with more pride. Their hearts get harder and harder and they blame God and they turn away from the Lord. But if we, we don't have time to go through it, Hebrews 12, verse 6 through 11, if we, after receiving God's chastening, after receiving God's correction, 
turn back to him, it tells us that it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Again, maybe that's you here this morning. You're going through the difficulties that you've sown, or you're going through the difficulties of tasting the small judgments of God. How are you going to react to it? Again, if you're saved here, yeah, there's going to be small difficulties now, but there are no difficulties in heaven. If you're here and you're not saved, there's small difficulties now, and then there are immense difficulties in the tribulation and for all of eternity. So again, how do we apply this? We share the gospel. We preach the gospel. We share it with people that we love and we care about. Worship team, you can come up. And again, with that, let's be in prayer for one another. As we close in worship, if you're here and you're a believer, man, be praying for the people around you. Be praying for your own heart. Lord, search my heart. God, am I completely right with you? Am I ready to live with you, Lord? Am I ready to die for you like some of those martyrs? I encourage you to be praying for next week, next week's Mother's Day. Just in case you didn't know, right? Be praying for that. Dads, hopefully you all knew that, right? It's Mother's Day. Again, I thought it was funny. I'll share it with you guys. I'm listening to Joe Foe's share on Revelation 8, preparing for this. And he's closing. He says, I remember when I was a pastor in my 30s, going through Revelation for the first time. I went through Revelation 9 on Mother's Day. I was stupid then, but, right? So I'm in my 30s. This is my first time going through the book of Revelation, so... I think wisdom is crying out. So pray for me. We'll be looking at some different type of teaching. Don't do well with topical. So just be praying. Be praying for all the moms. Be praying for a lot of the prodigal kids that come out on Mother's Day. Be praying for some of the knucklehead husbands that come on Mother's Day, right? Be in prayer. Be in prayer for the church. Let's see what God wants to do. But hey, let's all stand. We'll pray. And we'll close in worship. If you need prayer, there'll be pastors up front. Lord, we, we thank you, Lord. Again, God, just how much you want to preserve life. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here, Lord, and they've been buying into the lies of this world, Lord, that you're this God of wrath, this God of destruction, this God of judgment, and you're not a fair God, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would just convict them, Lord, for buying into the lies of this world, Lord. That they would be reminded, Lord, how you are love. You are the personification of love itself, God. If any of us, we've grown bitter towards you because some of our hobbies, some of our idols, you say that they are sin, Lord. Lord, I pray that we'd humble ourselves, we'd repent, and we'd fall on you, Lord. Again, stir within our hearts, God. We pray for all the sons, all the daughters, all the family that will be here next week, Lord. Again, God, we, we just pray for salvation, Lord. We pray for repentance, for restoration, Lord. Again, thank you for the work that you're doing in our church, Lord. And God, I pray none of us would quench your spirit, Lord. None of us would be bringing a a spirit of division here, Lord. But we'd continue to seek you and want you to move mightily in our lives personally, in our homes personally, in our relationships, at our jobs, God. So, Lord, do that work within us. And, Lord, if anyone here does not know you, if they're not sure that They'll be taken out of the wrath to come. Lord, I pray and ask you to stir in their hearts to come and pray with one of the pastors. So we just love you. We thank you, Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen.